Uh, this morning, we're very grateful to have Dan Doriani with us. Dan's been with us for our men's retreat this weekend, shared yesterday morning with the university students at the OC. And, uh, and uh, Dan's been a friend to many of us for a long time, and we're grateful to him for his work. Most recently, he's been the pastor of Central Presbyterian Church in St. Louis. Uh, prior to that, and now again, he is at Covenant Seminary as a professor and doing other special projects there uh, this this time around. Uh, Dan has authored numerous books, spoken around the world and all of that, but most important for us is that we know Dan is a fellow sinner saved by grace. He is one, is one who has been called by the Lord to teach and to preach. God has gifted him for that. He's been faithful to it. And so uh, we are delighted that he's with us. Dan, please come. It's uh, good to see you and to see some of you again after being together on Friday night and a couple maybe even Saturday morning. Um, I'm going to drink some water because I realize I'm thirsty. Is that all right? Just think deep thoughts while I take a sip of water. Well, it is good to be here and, um, and to see some old friends. Bill uh, and I met over the phone actually 12 years ago when he questioned me to see if I were fit for ministry in the EPC, and he was very kind and gracious over the phone. I was glad to meet him. And then your pastors, uh, Mayo and Donahoe, I've known for even longer, 15, 18 years. Um, and it's been good to get to know some of the men here and to see what God is doing in this church, which is uh, a light to Lawrence, Kansas. My text today is from Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 15. And um, I was talking to the men at the request of Rick Pratt um, about life in Babylon and the challenges of living faithfully in this day, a day when our culture seems not only to be drifting, but actually antithetical to Christian values in many ways. And so I thought I would continue the theme, not of Babylon, but of living faithfully and what it takes to, to do so. We actually just sang about that in the previous song, Jesus, I my cross have taken. So this is along that line, along that theme, and listen if you would as I read God's word from Luke 14. When one of those at the table with him, that's Jesus, heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and make them or compel them to come in so that my house will be full, I tell you, 
not one of those men who were originally invited will get a taste of my banquet. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother's wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build, but was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Again, let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear what you're saying to us, what you're saying to us as individuals, what you're saying to us as a church, as people living in this age. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me um, state my theme. My theme is very simple. The gospel is free and yet costly. Discipleship, knowing Jesus, following Jesus, receiving the benefits of Christ, is free in one way, and yet in another way it will cost you everything you have. That is the theme of this passage. Now, fortunately, um, God plants in every culture ideas, sayings, wisdom, that coheres with his truth, and and we have one along this line in our land. And our saying is, the best things in life are free. And that's true. The best things are free. Fresh air, you don't pay for that. And good health and physical energy, the love of husband and wife, parent and child, friend and friend. These are all things we, we do not and could not pay for. They are free. And yet, uh, the best things in life have hidden costs. Good health is free, but it comes at the cost of saying no to cheesecake and potato chips and saying yes to the gym and blueberries and various other roots and herbs. And, you know, you have to eat properly and drink properly, and um, so it goes. We're a long way from the coasts, but maybe some of you like to go to the ocean. The, the ocean is free. But to enjoy the ocean, you have to pay the price of overcoming the fear of the waves. And you have to learn how to swim and learn the truth about sharks, not watch Shark Week Week, and let that terrify you. Um, But above all, love is free. And the best love of all is uh, committed and therefore costly. Commitment costs a great deal. We want the benefits. We shun the costs. Consider love. We love the idea that my spouse, my beloved, will never let me down. He or she will always be there for me. But, as I told the men, in the land of Oz, every young man thinks he's marrying Dorothy. One day he wakes up and suspects that he's married the Wicked Witch of the West. And the men, well, you know... Every young woman thinks she's marrying Prince Charming, but she wakes up one day and is not sure if she's married the Tin Man or the Straw Man or a Cowardly Lion. 
And then what? Then you're committed. And commitment is free, but not cheap. And so it is with our relationship with God. This passage tells us about that. Jesus was one day dining with some folk, uh, people who were hostile to him. Chapter 14, the early part begins and tells us he was dining with a Pharisee, which he commonly did. It was a Sabbath day, and on that Sabbath day, um, the scribes and Pharisees were watching him to see if he would do anything that they disapproved of, which he commonly did. In fact, there was a man who was sick, and Jesus healed him, which violated their rules. And so they began to um, criticize him. They watched and criticized. But it was a banquet, and in those days, um, people didn't have assigned seating all the time at all. And, but there were ranks. You know, the closer you are to the host, the more um, social status you have. And so people were angling for these seats of honor near to the host. And Jesus watched them and said, you know, I have some counsel for you. Um, if you really want honor, give up the attempt. Just take a seat anywhere. And if you're noble and you sit at the bottom of, of the rank of seats, The master may see you and call you up in front of everyone. This is my counsel to you, he said. Now, of course, Jesus isn't really giving advice on seating charts. What he's saying is, don't live for human glory. Don't live for the eyes and the approval of mankind. Live for the divine audience. Seek to please one, and that is the Lord. And stop grasping for prestige And for example, when you host a banquet, he said to those hosting the banquet, don't invite wealthy, important people like yourself. Invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame, the outsiders who don't have any opportunity for such honors. And then you'll have a banquet indeed, and God, your Father in heaven, will see, will notice, will approve, will reward you and repay you, he says, at the resurrection of the just. Now there was a man sitting there, although Jesus was saying things that probably upset some folk, who agreed with Jesus. And he said, verse 15, our text begins, Blessed is anyone, blessed is whoever will eat in the kingdom of God. He's saying, Jesus, I like what you're saying. Uh, God approves and blesses all sorts of people. He's inclusive. And um, won't it be great to be at the banquet? And Jesus says to the man, really? Are you so sure you'll be there? With your brilliant insights, where do you stand? And so, as he often does, he tells a story. Now, I want you to participate in the story. I'm going to ask you some questions in a moment. You ready for that? You're the people who volunteered to come at 8.15, so you're awake, right? So you can get a sip of water and get yourself ready. Because I'm going to ask you a question in a couple minutes. Okay, the story goes like this. A certain man who is evidently rich prepares a great banquet. He invites his guests according to the conventions of that day like today you invite you secure a commitment they say i'm going to come he decides how much food to prepare they didn't have watches in those days so uh the way you did it was you sent out a servant and said you know the ox has roasted sufficiently it's time for you to come and uh this is evidently a prosperous group of people they're buying fields five yoke of oxen these are major expenditures and uh, so maybe they're of his social class And the time comes, and the servant goes and says, okay, it's time to eat, and they began to make excuses, and this is where you participate. Please evaluate, thumbs up, thumbs down, the first excuse. 
I have bought a field and I must go look at it. Very good. You are well trained by your pastor. Because if it's your field, guess what? You can look at it anytime you want. In fact, you can even look at it before you buy it. And if you want an inspection of the field, you usually inspect before, not afterward. And if you want an inspector, you can send a servant. If you can afford to buy a field, expensive land. This is a terrible excuse. Okay, excuse number two. I have bought five yoke of oxen. I have to try them out. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Thumbs down, very good. This is a little bit like saying today, I just bought a fleet of trucks. I have to see if they'll start. Or it's like saying... I got a new software system for my business. I have to see if it'll boot up. You check these things out in advance. If they're your auction, you can test them out. Once you bought them, you can test them anytime you want. This is a terrible excuse. Good job. Excuse number three. I have married a wife, so I can't come. Thumbs up, thumbs down. This just seems harder to people. All right, so I'm just, for those of you who put your thumbs up that this is a good excuse, let me just tell you. Women like banquets too. If men like them, women like them. In fact, they may even like them more than men. I'm not sure about that. But besides, this, this statement, I've married a wife, implies he just got married. He knew he would get married. When he said, yes, I'll come, he wasn't oblivious to the fact that he was engaged for marriage. So this also is a bad excuse. They're all, in fact, insults to the host. They say yes. At the last moment, they say no. And the host is angry, but he is not stymied. He responds graciously and tells his servant to go out to invite, literally to go and lead lower class people into his banquet. He tells his servant to do what the Pharisees were supposed to do, invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And then he says, we'll have a real party. Now, the servant knows the master, And by the time he hears the word, he says, well, you know, um, I've already done that. I've already invited the people who can't reciprocate, uh, the outsiders. But you know what, sir? There is still room. And so the master says, uh, well, then I want you to go out into the, the country lanes that go outside our city and compel the people to come in. Since I'm in a university town, I'm going to give you a freebie. Here's, here's the free gift on interpretation. This verse, compel them to come in, was used as the basis for the Inquisition. Compel them, compel them to come in. And it's a complete misunderstanding of the passage. It's not saying force people into the kingdom of God. It's saying you must insist that the invitation is genuine. So when you meet somebody and within two hours they're inviting you to their ranch, you know, to ride their horses and their four-wheelers and so forth, you have to say, oh, I can't come. I've only known you for two hours. And if you, if you really want to get the person to your ranch, you have to say, no, I insist. Please come. And you compel them to come in. It just, it's just a conversation about sincerity. It's not saying force people to convert. People think he can't be serious. And so the servant convinces them. He means it. Please, I insist, come. There's no time, unfortunately, in the parable to bask in Jesus' generosity because he quickly adds, but none of those who were originally invited will get a taste of my banquet. That's the last word in the parable, and it's the first word of interpretation. In the parable world, in the real world, you reject the invitation, 
you do not enjoy the banquet. Now, I'm going to imagine that your pastor or pastors have told you at some point that when Jesus tells parables, they're symbolic. And ordinarily in the parable, there's someone who represents God and his ways, or Jesus puts himself in his own parables. And then there are others in the parable who represent uh, faithful and unfaithful responses to God and to his ways. They have heard this, right? And Bill nods his head. So I'm going to ask you to, um, you know, play along with me again and see if you can discern who stands for what, who is who. So it's actually pretty easy, isn't it? The inviter represents God. Or the inviter represents Jesus, who invites people to himself and says, Come, participate in my family, my household, my kingdom, my eternal banquet. That's easy. He issues invitations. Um, And then those who were originally invited would represent... Those religious Jews who originally said yes to God, and then when Jesus came, like the Pharisees who said, you know, we're God's people. And then when Jesus actually came announcing the kingdom, they said, "Ah, you know, maybe not. Now that I get a look at the way you're doing things, the way you're eating with tax collectors and sinners and inviting 'er ne'er-do-wells into your presence and breaking our rules like healing people on the Sabbath, "Ah, you know, maybe not. They said yes and then no. And then the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame would represent those outside Israelites who are no part of the inner core, no part of the religious elite. And Jesus is saying, and God is saying, no, you outsiders are welcome also. And then those way outside, those outside the village who have to be compelled to come in, those would represent the Gentiles When Jesus reaches, he says to them essentially this, you know, you have your gods, Zeus and Hermes and so forth, but they're really no gods at all. I'm the God of Israel, but I am your God and the God of all people. And they say, well, actually, no, we have our own religion, our own ways over here. We don't need your God. And Jesus says, actually, no, you don't have your own God. They're not gods at all. And I invite you to myself. And that's what, of course, we read earlier, even in the Gospel of Luke, that Jesus is a light of revelation to the Gentiles and all flesh will see his salvation. Well, what does this have to say to us? There's a message in the invitations. Jesus is ever inviting people to himself, and people are ever saying, Yes, and then no, or no, and then yes. And then it was religious leaders, and today it's people who maybe go to church, and then, uh, you know, they drift away from church, and uh, they like the teachings of Jesus, they like the idea of eternal life, or mercy, or grace, or forgiveness, but, you know, the cost of following Jesus, they're not so sure about that. There, there are lots of people who, who try church and say yes without much conviction, and without a clear understanding of things, and they, they, uh, they get a dose of religion and morality. And then somebody says, well, you know, it's not just a dosage here. It's a total commitment we're talking about. And, and maybe they've been baptized and catechized and sanitized for most major sins, but 
it's religion, not real faith. And so they don't know Jesus, and they say yes, and then they say no. There are people like that, aren't there? More than we might like. Of course, Jesus isn't thwarted by that. He continues to invite, including those who said yes, then no. He invites them back, and he invites other people who seem far away from the kingdom of God. Now, invitations are serious business. Can I ask you to um, think back a little bit to junior high and early high school when life was socially dubious? Can you do that for a minute? Remember hearing about parties and wondering if you could go to the party? Wondering if you were cool enough. Now, invitations come different ways in different communities. Sometimes there's formal invitations come to my house. And, you know, phone calls come in or text messages. And sometimes it's informal. There's a party at so-and-so's house. And there's really no invitation. But you kind of have a sense of whether you're supposed to go or not, right? And so we look at ourselves and we wonder, you know... Uh, 12 to 17 year olds know that the uh, gold, silver, and bronze of that age are good looks and social skill and a sense of humor and athletic ability. And you kind of size yourself up. How much gold, how much bronze do I have? And you decide you have no gold, but a little bit of silver and a lot of bronze. This is kind of a silver gold kind of party. And, but you have a friend who's got a fair amount of silver. And so if you go with your friend, maybe you'll be okay. And, Invitations are, are tricky and serious business. And um, it's, it remains so to this day, doesn't it? You know, there, there are parties that adults desperately want to get in. They may occur here in Lawrence. They may occur in Washington, D.C. or New York City or London. Uh, and people work hard to gain credentials to, to get in. So God has a party. And the guest list will take your breath away. People like Moses, David, Apostle Paul, Peter, James, and John, Calvin, Luther, a few other people like that. Um, And you look at the guest list and the host, and you say, well, no way I'm getting into that party. But in fact, God says, no, you're invited. I insist. And you say, well, I've got... No gold, no silver, no bronze for this party. And God says, right, I insist. Come. I want you to come. You think to yourself, well, there must be a mistake. I'm not worthy. You can't possibly mean it. It seems good, too good to be true. And so the servant has to insist. God wants you in his eternal party. Credentials or no. And you think to yourself, I have no standing. And and Jesus says, absolutely. That's why we call it the free gift of the gospel. Now, um, I have to tell you that, as uh, Bill implied, I've been preaching for a while. And the reception of that comment has shifted over the years. So 30 years ago, 20 years ago, people were still maybe a little bit amazed that God would invite them as they are. Uh, to himself, but uh, people aren't as amazed anymore. And I think somewhat seriously that it's connected to the fact that um, if you just show up for a three-legged race when you're seven years old, you get a trophy, this, you know, a miniature 
of the Empire State Building for your sheer gloriousness that you came, you showed up, and you tried. And you've been told since you're 7, 9, 11, 13, 15, 17 that you are magnificent. And if you're as magnificent as people tell you you are, then of course God is, is excited at the prospect of having you in his presence. And so people aren't as amazed anymore the way they should be that the holy, magnificent creator God wants people, schlubs, like you and me, at his meal. So we have to hear that a little bit differently today. But, but let's just say... Um, God invites us to himself, not because we're good, but because he is gracious and kind and loving. And this should astonish us, even if it doesn't, that the mighty God has no terms at all. And we should think something is required. What can I do to get into God's presence? And the answer is no, there's nothing you can do in order to get into the feast You enter God's presence by faith alone, through grace alone, by turning to Christ alone. And if someone would say, well, you know, that's awesome, but at least I had the good sense to accept that offer of coming, then I would say to that person, even that isn't a qualification because faith doesn't look inward to the believing self, but looks upward to God in whom we believe. So we bring nothing, not even the wisdom of of leaning on Jesus, we we bring nothing but the invitation saying, look, he said I could come. And I believe that. So the invitation is free. You know what I'm going to say next. And yet it is costly. Because the best things in life are free, and yet they're costly. So let me um, illustrate a bit from my family. Um, I'm a kind of a new grandfather. And I, my grandbaby lives in the area. And um, her birth, my granddaughter's birth, set me thinking about her mother's birth, my daughter's birth. Uh, She was born, like her daughter, after a very long, arduous labor, 20 hours of labor. And um, if you've been on scene for that, you know that's very, very difficult. And after a baby is born, there are certain things you're supposed to do in a hospital, like and you put the little cap on, and you wash the baby, and you get those photo opportunities with the mom, and, and say how beautiful the baby is, and a year later you look at the baby and say, my goodness, that child was ugly at birth. But you, you don't say that at first, and uh, because it's just so awesome that she's born, and she's so cute, and depends on us, and, um, and you know, they get the APGAR test, and you know, nine, way to go, that's a fabulous score, nobody ever gets a ten, so that's as good as it gets, and and, and you know, then you lay the baby on mother's tummy and you have that bonding lest, you know, the baby like some duck imprint on a nurse and be confused for life. And, you know, my wife is a very sensible person and she had gone 30 hours without sleep, not just 20 hours of labor. And she said, okay, that's great. Thanks for the photo opportunity. I'm going to sleep. And she did, which left me also no sleep for 30 hours to accompany my daughter through the next round of activities, which included, you know, smearing gel in her eyes and a tube up her nose and, you know, making sure there's nothing that will choke her down her throat and so forth. And then, and you know, she's crying for all this. And then they stretch her out under bright lights to see how long she is. And she's been tucked up so beautifully for nine months that she hates it. And then she's, she's weighed, you know, without any clothes on. It's cold on the steel. And I'm thinking, 
you know, what are you doing to my baby? I mean, I was about to just rip her out of their arms in my sleep-deprived, addled state, of course. Um, and, then, and then I stepped away from myself and, and asked myself this question. Why are you so emotionally attached to this little one? You don't even know her. She hasn't done anything for you. But you have this surge of parental protective love toward this little one, and it has no connection whatsoever to her merit. And I realized this is a picture of the gospel. Parental love is free. God the Father loves us freely. You don't do anything. A newborn baby doesn't do anything to earn the favor, the love of mom and dad. And that's a very godlike moment when we see that. Now, if my children were here this weekend, they would say, yes, dad, um, parental love is free, but it also had costs. For example, one of my children who was assigned the task of folding socks, and we had a lot of white athletic socks at times, would say that it is not possible to match all these socks. And we would say, nonetheless, one by one, you will match them because this is, this is your chore. This is what you do to help in our house. And uh, everybody, you know, cleaned their dishes up and somebody washed them and put them in the dishwasher, unloaded them, and you, you know, clean up your room. And parental love is free, but it has costs. And parental love is free, but there are rules. There are rules in our house, like don't lie to your parents Respect each other and don't hit your sister unless she clearly deserves it. These were the rules we had in our house. Those three rules actually cover a lot of ground. And my children did not obey those rules in order to get a father, but because they had a father. They didn't obey the rules hoping to obtain my love but they obeyed the rules because they knew their mother and their father loved them. And that's the way it is in a, in a family. In a family, we celebrate grace and unmerited favor, and yet we live a certain way. We love each other freely, but we don't behave however we want. We behave in the ways of the family. If mom and dad love us, we return the love by walking in their ways. And that's what it is in Israel. God's love is free, but his people walk in his ways. We conform ourselves to him. So, um, everything hinges on the, contra- on the conjunctions, right? Um, we're saved by faith alone, through grace alone, and acts of love and kindness and justice and mercy please God but we don't do them in order to gain God's pleasure. We do them because we have God's pleasure. That's true in the family of God. It's true in human families. And woe to the person who gets it backwards and thinks, I do in order to get love. That's a life of insecurity, conditional love. And a life of security is, I am loved, and therefore I live a certain way. Well, um, Jesus says next more about this right after he talks about the free offer of the gospel he starts talking about the cost of the gospel the cost of 
discipleship. His kingdom invitation is free, and yet it is costly. He says to his disciples, you must, for example, hate father, mother, wife, child, brothers and sisters, even your own life, or you can't be my disciple. You're my disciple for free, but it will cost you everything you have. All other loves must be secondary. And to mother and father, sister and brother, if you truly love God, you will love so much more than you love them that it will at times seem like hatred. As when, for example, um, in order to follow God's call in your life, you have to move when you have teenagers. And your teenagers may say, you hate me to do this to me. And you may find your way to say, no, I love you, but I love God more. It's not easy to say that. You don't say that in so many words, but that's what's going on in that scenario. Jesus also says, whoever does not bear his own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, I looked when I came in at the cross you have in your church, and I have to tell you that you have done better than average. Now... I'm not saying you did a great job because the problem we have in so many churches is that the cross that we put up is um, beautiful, burnished bronze or maybe even silver sometimes, a little bit of silver. And um, this is not burnished. This is a little bit rough. You can see the, the iron bands on it and the, the, the wood has a texture and it doesn't look perfect. There are a couple little gashes in it, so way to go. On the other hand, this cross is floating about, you know, nine feet above the ground, which implies that it's pretty light and kind of magical, right? It's a floating cross. I am not going to ask you to display it, but I would guess, I would say it's almost certain that some people here today are wearing crosses as jewelry. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm just going to tell you I know there's some people here who have a cross around their neck or in their ears, and um, it's, it's polished, it's silver, maybe, or gold-plated. And um, I'm not criticizing that. It's, a, it's often a symbol. It's a way of saying I, I'm with Jesus, and it's a reminder that I belong to him. But um, you can deceive yourself a little bit, because a cross that's pretty enough and light enough to be worn around the neck is... Um, beautiful and a little bit tamed. Whereas, and again, I'm not criticizing, I'm just asking you to think with me. Um, the cross in Jesus' day was not tame or safe. It was rough, heavy, brutal instrument of death. When Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, he's not, he's not talking about that cross or the one around your neck. He's talking about the cross that the Romans crucified people on, the most horrible death ever devised by humanity, at least until that day. So um, that's what he's saying, and uh, we have a hard time hearing that because we're creatures of our culture, and our, and our culture influences us. If I may say it, our affluence influences us. Our lives are pretty comfortable. Um, when, uh, when we think about taking up our cross, we hardly know what it means. Uh, what? What are the hardest things in a typical day for many of us? Um, lower back pain, a sleepless night, getting stuck in a traffic jam. Those lights on 6th Street are so poorly coordinated, aren't they? And, and 
the crossing streets get way too much green. I just hate it. And this is our adversity. Poorly timed red lights. And we don't even know, many of us don't even know, living in this fair city, university city, all the benefits of that. And we hardly even know what suffering means. I know many of you do suffer, but many of us don't know what suffering means. I read a a book about a year ago called Seventh Monsoon. It was about some missionaries who went to uh, India, northern India, on the border of Tibet. They were suffering. When the seventh monsoon came and the rain was coming through everywhere, that was just, you know, they had to carry water from the village well like everybody else. They had to learn the language. They had to eat different food. You know, they didn't know how to, they'd put the water on themselves to carry it and they would spill half of it. People would laugh at them. And then the monsoons come, everything's soaked and everything stinks and, you know, they can't find a decent house and, and, um, oh, and besides that, their church had been burned to the ground by angry radicals a few months earlier and there were threats that's suffering that's suffering and it's a long ways for most of us and it influences us this is a, a wonderful church i want to say it's a great church maybe it's maybe it's the best church in lawrence if you're a visitor please don't be offended i'm the guest speaker i'm so I'm allowed to say things like that. It, it really may be the best church in Lawrence, Kansas. And, and that fact can kind of mislead us. Because you came to this church because of friendly people and vibrant community and preaching and teaching and music. And, you know, can I be a little bit hard on you? There's a little bit of consumerism in that. I'm coming to the best church. A church that fits an insightful person like me. And I came to this church, is what people say. I came to this church. I'm not talking about this church, but all fine churches. People say, well, I came to this church because of the preaching, because of the teaching, because of the community, because of the music ministry, because of the children's ministry, because of something that is attractive to me. And we sang this song... Jesus, I my cross have taken, stanza two. Let the world despise and leave me, they have left my Savior too. In thy service, pain is pleasure. How could that be? Human hearts and looks deceive me. Thou art not like them, untrue. If you're going to follow Christ, you're going to be betrayed and criticized. Oh, while thou dost smile upon me, God of wisdom, love, and might, foes may hate and friends disown me. Show me thy face and all is bright. You sang that. You sang about suffering for Christ. Did you mean it? Are you willing to be disowned for, for Christ? Let me, let me say it differently. People say, I joined this church for its preaching, teaching, youth ministry, music ministry. Rarely indeed, I was a pastor, church kind of like this for 10 years. Rarely do I hear people say, we joined this church because we thought it needed us. Rarely do I hear people say, we joined this church because we wanted to pour ourselves out here. I have never in my life heard anybody say, we came to this church to suffer here. 
to suffer for Christ here. I've never heard that. Not in America. Well, Jesus gives us two analogies to drive this home, and they are of a tower and generals at war. Do you see it? Jesus says, near the end of our passage, would anyone start a project unless they were sure they could finish? Uh, a tower is a large building. Today we would say a mansion or an industrial park or something like that. Who would start building a mansion or an industrial facility if they didn't know they had funds to finish? How ludicrous to start and not finish. And of course, the point is simple. If you're going to start with me, that's a grand project because it will cost you everything you have. And make sure you have the resolve to finish. So he's saying, don't follow me lightly. This invitation is free, but it'll cost everything you have. Make sure you understand that before you venture. Lest anyone think, oh, okay, so Jesus is saying it's hard and you don't have to take the hard path. Um, It's okay if you don't take the hard path. He also tells a story about two kings at war. People don't study this one or talk about this one nearly as much. It describes two kings. One has 10,000 men, one has 20,000 men. The one with 10,000 has a king with 20,000 coming against him. And Jesus says, if you have 10,000 troops and you're doubled by your foe, won't you sue for peace before he comes if you have any wisdom? Now we think to ourselves, what's that about? Well, remember, Pastor Vogler and I both said that there is usually a God figure in a parable, right? So just think for a second. Who might the king with 20,000 be, and who might the king with 10,000 be? What do you think? Which one is God? The the king with 20,000. And then the king with 10,000 would be us. And he's saying, count the cost of following me. Don't start building a tower if you can't finish it. But also count the cost of not following me. Because I am the great king, the God with whom you have to do. And he was not for me, building a tower with me, willing to pay the price as we accept the offer of the gospel. He was not for me, is against me. And I'm the mighty king. And you really don't want to be against me. Now, if you're a secular person, you might think something like this. I don't like that turn of events. And and, and I've sat with secular people who say things kind of like this. Um, Why do I have to face this terrible choice between loving God and receiving the gospel, which is hard, and not loving God and becoming God's enemy? Why can't it be more like, you know, the deists and, uh, you know, in Jesus' day, the Epicureans, who had a God who exists, but he's far away. It doesn't really matter much. He set the world in motion. Now it's up to us. Why can't God be like that and just let me do whatever I want? Right? To which I'll answer this way. Do you know anybody that you wish were different? Maybe you're married to somebody. You think, she's great, he's great, but I wish he were different. We have a next-door neighbor, and you wish your neighbor were different. Yes? Does wishing make it so? Does wishing your spouse were different make them different? Everybody should be going like this. No. God is a person. Jesus is a person. Does wishing Jesus were different make him different? You may wish that Jesus didn't really care what what we do, but in fact he does care. 
And you are either for him or you're against him. And that's the reality. And you either accept his offer, his free offer of the gospel, or you reject it. You're either for him or against him. You either receive his grace or you don't. And in case it wasn't clear, Jesus concludes, and anyone who does not give everything, give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. This is not just the word of a teacher. This is life and death. Are you my disciple or not? Will you receive the free offer of the kingdom of grace, of mercy, of life with me or not? If you say yes, it will cost you everything you have. Your foes may attack, your friends may disown, but if God is on my side and I'm on his, then good enough. The gospel's free, but it costs us everything we have. It doesn't cost you anything to get right with God. There's nothing you need to do in order to receive God's favor. But once you receive his favor, once you receive the favor of Jesus, you are in a relationship with him. And you walk with him and you walk as he did. He's not asking you to do anything he didn't do. He took up his cross. He said, take up your cross and follow me. And so, my friends, I urge you to receive the offer of the gospel and go on the great adventure of faith. A family of love and a family where there are risks and costs, where there is betrayal and loss, but far greater gain in this life and always. Let's pray. Pray, Lord Jesus, that you would grant us more faith, a willingness to live for you, knowing you have died for us. I pray that we would come to you joyfully and yet also know that in your service, pain is pleasure and loss is gain if we but know you, Abba Father, Lord Jesus. Fix our hearts upon you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.